Amen. Ah. I feel like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't want it to end. I just want to stay right here. Before we get into Genesis 33 tonight, I actually want to rewind a little bit, and I want to start at the end of Genesis 32 and get a running start into Genesis 33. If you recall, at the end of Genesis 32, Jacob is wrestling with God. Jacob is struggling at this point in his life, but he's learning to struggle with God. And that's always an important lesson for all of us to learn, that even in our times of struggle, we struggle with God rather than without God. Jacob found himself wrestling with God. As I shared last week, there really is no more intimate sport than wrestling. It is two bodies literally plastered together, swapping, as I said last week, sweat and snot with each other. And, and, and you and I could talk about just our God coming down to earth and allowing himself to be engaged in a wrestling match with another human being all night long. God was doing something in that wrestling match, just as God will do something when we wrestle with him, when we get that intimate with him. God is not about superficial encounters or experiences. That's something you and I, as a church body, we have to be careful of, that we don't get caught up in superficial experiences and encounters, but that we are desiring the depth of an intimate contact and engagement with our God. And it is out of that that God will touch us in a way that produces lasting effects. Because that's what God wants to do. He wants to touch us so deeply and so strongly that the effects of our encounter with God will last. It will be permanent. It's not something that is temporary. And even as you finish out Genesis 32, we are reminded that God gave Jacob three sort of lasting reminders of his own encounter with him. He gave him a place, a limp, and a practice. Look at these verses with me for just a few moments before we get into chapter 33 tonight. And beginning in verse 29, Jacob asked, please tell me your name. Why do you ask me my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, explaining, certainly I have seen God face to face and survived. The sun rose over him as he crossed over Peniel, but he was limping because of his hip. That is why even to this day the Israelites did not eat the sinew which is attached to the socket of the hip because he struck the socket of Jacob's hip near the attached sinew. A place, Peniel, the face of God. That's where I saw the face of God. That was going to be a continual reminder 
of what happened and what God did, that place. There's, there's certain places where God touches us in such a way that we never forget those places. There may be impressions, imprints that God also places on. He may not put our hip out of socket, but he might touch us in such a way that we have a permanent reminder, a lasting reminder of what God has done in us, to us, and through us at that moment in our life. There might even be a practice that is born out of that encounter with God that we might carry with us for the rest of our lives. These are the three lasting reminders that God gave to Jacob at the end of chapter 32. Now remember something too. Jacob was struggling with facing his greatest fear. God was leading him to face his brother Esau, who the last thing Jacob knew wanted to kill him. And so notice that this encounter with God came at a time in Jacob's life when Jacob was facing a situation that was wholly beyond him, wholly out of his control. He had to totally rely and trust in God. And God also wanted to use this opportunity to create a hunger in Jacob for himself, for God. Do you know that's what God does in our lives? That especially in those moments of our life where we're in a situation that is totally beyond us, that one of the things that God will do in that situation is seek to create a hunger within us for more of him. In other words, Jacob had this intimate contact and encounter with God that God was hoping he would want more of that. That's what God wants to do with us. When we encounter him personally in our lives every day, as we come into his presence, as we pray, as we worship, as we come to his word, that he wants to create in us even a greater hunger for him out of that experience and encounter. That's why coming to the house of God as God's people is so important. Because as we faithfully come to the house of God, God wants to encounter us in such a way and do things in our life in such a way that we can't wait to come back. Because we're hungry to encounter God in that way again. Not that God works the same way in every service, but that we are meeting God, that we know God's presence is there and that we will meet with God in that place. And that's not all God wants to do when we are in a situation that is wholly beyond ourselves. These encounters with God, notice God never removes the challenges in our lives. He didn't remove the challenge of Jacob having to face Esau. What he does do when he encounters us is he prepares us for the challenges and strengthens us for them. That's important to remember. We many times want God to take the 
obstacles and the opposition and the challenges away. And God wants to use our encounters with him to prepare us for them, to strengthen us for them, so that we will be driven back to God continually knowing that more challenges and unseen things in our future are coming. And, and God then, again, he wants to do that every day in our lives. As we come into his presence and we worship him, we are encountering a God that is preparing us and strengthening us for things that we don't even know are coming yet. That's why God wants us again to be faithful to his house, because what does he do in his house? He prepares us and he strengthens us for what's ahead. He not only creates a hunger for us or within us for him, he also prepares and strengthens his people. And that's exactly what was happening with Jacob at the end of chapter 32. And then we come to chapter 33. And you see that in all of this, Jacob is still very human. And it is our tendency as human beings even after these extraordinary encounters that we may have with God, that we still try to plan a little bit. And that's okay. God never chided Jacob for what he was doing here. In a sense, he was just showing prudence and wisdom because, again, he didn't know how Esau was going to react to him, but God did want Jacob to trust him that, as we're going to see, if God was leading me to this meeting, to this reconciliation of brothers, then, then I have to trust that God was working on Esau too. Right? So Jacob looked up, chapter 33, verse 1, and saw that Esau was coming along with 400 men. I'm sure that didn't ease his fears. Now, I don't know if any of you in this room or any of you who are watching live stream tonight, I don't, I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where you had such a rift and row with somebody in your life and that relationship blew up and was severed for, for maybe many years and it really did not end well at all. And yet at some point down the road, God was leading you to come back and seek to reconcile with that person, not knowing what their reaction was going to be. If you have had a similar situation like that, then you, you know exactly how fast Jacob's heart was beating, I'm sure, at this point. Was Esau going to kill him? when he saw him? Was he and these 400 men going to charge and just slaughter Jacob and his family? Jacob did not know. This situation was wholly beyond him, but he knew that this is what God wanted. And so he was following the Lord. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the servants and their children in front, with Leah and her children behind them and Rachel and Joseph behind them. Sort of shows you who the most valuable were, right? The ones in the back, Rachel and Joseph. 
Jacob himself went on ahead of them, and he bowed toward the ground seven times as he approached his brother. This is the custom of greeting one another in that culture who is greater or superior than yourself. It is a way of acknowledging I'm in the presence of one greater than me. And yet think about it. Jacob also knew that he was the son of promise, that he was the one that the prophecies were all about. And so even though his brother was older, that in a sense, in God's plan and in God's purposes, he was the greater one. But he had learned through his walk and growth to be more humble and to show humility and to show humility to his brother, as well as learning to walk humbly with his God. And so what do we learn from Jacob here? We learn that the way of exaltation always lies in the way of humiliation. The way up is always the way down. Whomever the Lord exalts, he first humbles. That is the way of it. That is the way God does it. We're getting ready to study the life of Joseph. And he's a great example of that. God was going to elevate Joseph to the second most powerful person on planet Earth. But before that, Joseph had to go through a lot of humbling circumstances. Because before God will exalt us to a very high level, he's got to make sure that we will remain humble not only towards him, but towards others, even when he elevates us to a position of power, prominence amongst others. Jacob, in this meeting, in this encounter, was not only having to wholly trust God, he was also humbling himself before his brother. And that's a good lesson for us. God exalts the humble. God gives grace to the humble, but rejects the proud. But then notice verse 4. This is a stunningly surprise scene. Esau runs to meet him, embraces him, hugs his neck, and kisses him, and they both weep. And what do we learn from this? We learn that Jacob's fears did not pan out as he expected them to. And that's, again, a great lesson for us. Many times, the things that we are afraid of don't ever come to fruition. That's why God never wants us to live with all the what-ifs. Because the what-ifs that we cook up in our mind of how things are going to go, most of the time never pan out like we think they will. I mean, think about it. Think about the angst and the sleepless nights and maybe the ulcers that Jacob gave himself over this meeting. Think about him writhing and all of this. And for what? For nothing. 
He didn't have to be afraid at all. And again, here's why. Because when God is in a situation, we can trust that God will work on both sides. Even though we only know our side, God is working on the other side. And that's what God wanted Jacob and all of us to learn from this. I've had many experiences like that as a pastor over the years where God has led me to have some really difficult conversations with people about things in their life. And I had to learn over the years that me getting worked up thinking how were they going to, that if God was leading me, to that meeting, if God was leading me to that conversation, that I had to learn that God was working on them just as he was working on me, and it never went the way I thought. Many times I was, like I'm sure Jacob was, shocked and surprised at the response because God already had them at a different place too just as he had to work on me to get me to a certain place. Something else I want to point out here, obviously I, I'll never be able to prove this maybe till I get to heaven and have a talk with Jesus. But did you note that if you remember the story in the New Testament where Jesus talks about the prodigal son, and the father's reaction when the prodigal son comes back, do you note that it's exactly identical to Esau's reaction to Jacob? Was the example of the prodigal's father in Luke, was it Jesus taking what Esau's reaction was to his brother? Because if you read them, it's exactly the same response. Let me go back. He, verse 4, ran to meet him. That's what the prodigal's father did. He embraced him. That's what the prodigal's father did. He hugged his neck. That's what the prodigal's father did. He kissed him, and they both wept. Same exact reaction. Maybe it's just coincidence, but maybe Jesus was using Esau's response to his brother as the example of, the prodigal's father. Notice when Esau looked up and saw the women and the children, he asked, who are these people with you? And now comes something else that's very important for us to be reminded of. Jacob replied, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Notice that first in this encounter, Jacob humbles himself, and secondly, Jacob acknowledges God's kindness, faithfulness, and grace in every aspect of his life. He is saying to his brother and acknowledging to his brother, all that I have is a gift from my God. It's important for us to live that way as well, to live humbly and to acknowledge that all the good that we have and that we enjoy comes from the hand and is a gift from our God. Notice the female servants, verse 6, came forward with their children and bowed down. Then Leah came forward with her children and they bowed down. And then finally Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed down. 
all of them following the example of Jacob to Esau. Then again, notice in this stunningly surprising scene something else. Verse 8, Esau then asked, what did you intend by sending all these herds to meet me? <laughs> and notice that Jacob, unlike before in his life, is completely transparent and honest. <laughs> Can we say he's getting there? Because if you thought about somebody that was completely transparent and honest in the Bible, Jacob would not be our first choice, right? But he is here. He basically says, well, I wanted to find favor in your sight, my Lord. And Esau then stuns us again by saying, I have plenty, my brother. Keep what belongs to you. And then Jacob says, no, please take them. Jacob said, if I have found favor in your sight, accept my gift from my hand. And I want you to note again two things, the same things, but from each of the brothers. Neither one of them at this point in their life are focused on things. They're focused on the relationship. Did you note that? They're not caught up with the things. What they really care about is the relationship. There's that saying that we can either love things and use people or we can love people and use things. And finally, both of these men have gotten to a place in their life where the relationship matters more than the things. God wants us to get there too. To not only trust him and remain humble before him and before others and to acknowledge that everything that we have is a gift from him, but also to value above all things Value relationships. You and I all know of relationships in this world that have been destroyed because things came between the relationship. I see that, as I've told you before, quite often when it comes to death and families dealing with taking care of what's been left behind, the fights that families have over things. We must be careful that things never become more important than relationships. And that's what they're focused on here. Then notice this incredible statement in verse 10 by Jacob. He says, now that I have seen your face and you have accepted me, it is as if I have seen the face of God. Whoa, let's stop there. First of all, we know in chapter 32, Jacob did see the face of God. So what's he saying here by stating to his own brother that when I looked at your face, it's as if I saw the face of God. What he's saying is this. He's saying, I see God in this whole thing. I see God in your countenance. I see God in your reaction. I see God in your response. I'm giving God the credit for this, that th this is all of God. 
I see the work of God. I see the hand of God. I see the fingerprints of God. That's what Jacob is saying by saying, when I see your Because remember, Esau isn't even a believer. Esau never will become a believer. He is the ancestors of the Edomites, from whom Herod comes from. And even though God will be faithful to his promises even to Esau, and he will bless Esau with many descendants and with many lands and, and with material things of this world, there are no spiritual treasures in Esau's ancestry. Because they chose never to be followers of Jehovah. And so this also reminds us that God's grace can work and bring about behavior even in unbelievers' lives. Even they can, even though they don't even understand it, they can be recipients of the grace of God and can be acting out of the grace that God is giving them. And they don't even know God. They don't even acknowledge God. And yet God can be seen in their behavior. That's why even worldly people can be nice and kind and considerate and selfless and all that. It's because they are actually responding to the grace of God that he's given to them, even though they don't acknowledge it or recognize it. Seeing the face of God. There are people that I'm around that I always, it's like when I look at you, I see God. Now, they're believers, but I'm just saying, you, you and I have that experience just like Jacob did. We can see the evidence, if you will, of God in their lives and even on their face and the way they respond and their attitude. That's what Jacob is saying here. Then verse 11, please take my present that was brought to you, for God has been generous to me and I have all I need. Let's stop there. That's a great phrase, too. God has been generous to me, and I have all, my, all I need. Notice, another principle is that our generosity is fueled by our recognition of God's generosity to us. The more we realize how generous God has been to us, the more generous and open-handed we will be towards others. If we feel like God has given us a raw deal and not been generous to us and not blessed us, then we will not live open-handedly towards others. Jacob has learned just how blessed he is, and therefore he wants to be a blessing to others. He's learning also, to trust God to supply his need rather than relying on his own strategy. To receive from the hand of God what God wants to give him. Oh. And then, obviously, too, with the phrase, I have all I need, oh, he's learning what Paul talked about in Philippians, learning to be content. Learning to be content with what I'm, I've received from God rather than discontent that I don't have maybe all that I want. But I'm recognizing 
I have all of that I need. God has been good. God has been generous, and I don't need any more than what God has chosen to give me. And I need to be thankful for it. That's, you can see the growth in Jacob, right? Listen, as we're going to just see in a minute, like us, he's got a long way to go. But from where he was at the very beginning when he deceived his brother out of the blessing and out of all of that and, and, and deceived others, he's come a long way. And it's because of these encounters that he's had with God along the way where he's built altars and he's worshiped the Lord and he's sought God's presence and he's prayed and he's done all these things. It has been through his connection and contact with God that he's gotten to this point and that's how you and I get to this point. It's through our spiritual growth and contact with God and being in his house and encountering him so that he creates a greater hunger for him out of these encounters and engagements. And so out of these encounters too, we understand that he's preparing us and strengthening us. So we want to come back and get more prepared and more strengthened for what we don't even know is ahead, but God does. And God wants us to seize those opportunities so that we will be ready for what we don't know is coming. Then Esau said, verse 12, let's be on our way. I'll go in front of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are young, that I have to look after the sheep, the cattle nursing their young. If they're driven too hard for even a single day, all the animals will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will travel more slowly at the pace of the herds and the children until I come to see my Lord at Seir. So Esau said, let me leave some of my men with you. Why do that? Jacob replied, my Lord has already been kind enough to me. So that same day, Esau made his way back to Seir, but Jacob didn't go back to Seir. And that's important because Jacob was wise in avoiding going back to Seir with his brother for this reason. God knew that it was absolutely necessary for the plan and purpose that he had for Jacob, that Jacob had to meet his brother, be reconciled to his brother, but not live in fellowship with his brother. You see, sometimes God may want us to reconcile a relationship, but that doesn't mean he wants us to be as close as we always were. That doesn't mean that we need to be bosom buddies and lifetime friends. That doesn't mean we need to live in fellowship with each other because that would have been bad because they were on two different paths. And Jacob, I think, was understanding that. I, I can't go back because me and Esau don't do the God thing the same way. We, we don't see things the same. We're, we can't relate with each other in the same way. But it was good that they had this restoration and that they at least then could be at peace and live at peace. See, this needed, to, this needed to be off of Jacob's mind and heart. And God knew that Jacob could only go so far as long as this was hanging over him. So God needed to bring him to this point so that that could be done, so that, so that Jacob could move past that and, and get on with what else God had for him. Don't think that just because God may be moving you 
to go back and somehow reconcile or restore relationship that God wants it to be the same as it was before there was a rift? That may not be the case at all. That, that's a whole different ballgame. Because again, God wants us to hook us up with people that we're, we're walking the same and, and that we are aligned together and aligned with God. And Jacob and Esau were not. You see. And then we'll close with this. Because as great as Jacob has been up to this point, <laughs> the chapter sort of ends with Jacob making a fatal mistake. Because Jacob, it says in verse 17, traveled to Succoth where he built himself a house and made shelters for his livestock. And that is why the place was called Succoth. And then after that, he left Padan Aram. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem in the land of Canaan. He camped near the city and he purchased a portion of the field where he had pitched his tent, all of that, and set up an altar there. Why do I say Jacob's made a fatal mistake? Because if you go back to chapter 31, God did not call Jacob to stop at Shechem. God said, you've got to come back all the way to Bethel. And by him stopping short, listen to this, by him stopping short of going all the way to where God wanted him, he is setting up for himself and the family the tragedy that will occur in the next chapter. If he would have went on to Bethel, all the way to where God wanted, what happened in chapter 34 would have never took, taken place. But because he stayed in that part, he did not set his family up for success. He put his family in danger. He placed his family in a very precarious place and position. Think of it sort of the same decision back in Genesis that Lot made by settling in Sodom and Gomorrah. Nothing good was going to happen in that place for Lot and his family. Nothing good was going to happen to Jacob and his family in Shechem. Bethel was where God wanted him to be, and he stopped short of Bethel. The lesson for us is don't stop short of where God wants to take you because it may be for our own protection that God wants us to keep going with him. I don't know what you're facing right now in your life, but I know this. God does not want you to fear whatever you're facing. God wants you to trust him. God is using this situation in your life that may be wholly beyond you to do many things, to create a greater hunger inside of you for him and to prepare you and strengthen you for the challenges that are ahead to grow in our faith, to be able to trust him and know that wherever he leads us, if he's leading me there, he's already there. 
He's already there and he's already worked on the other side of it. I just need to trust in him. Father, we thank you tonight for this precious story of two brothers being restored and reconciled. And Lord, we see just how amazing you are that as we sung about tonight, God, you are the way maker. You're the one that's always working and making a way, God, if we'll just trust you. But Lord, we confess it's so hard, even as the people of God, Lord, because we see where we are and we trust where we are, but Man, when we look out and we're, in, we're looking into the unknown, God, whew, it's hard to trust you for the unknown. And yet, God, you're there. And you want us to just lean on you and rely and depend upon you because you're faithful. And you will never fail us, God. And just as Jacob testified, when he saw the face and acceptance of his brother after all that they had been through, all he could say was, I saw the face of God. I knew that God was in this, that this, this was of God. There was no other explanation for it other than it was God who brought all this about. Because God is a way maker. God can do miracles. God is almighty, and God wants his people to live solidly on that truth. So God, may we leave here tonight living solidly on those truths. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.